Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. We'll start today's show with President Trump's decision on Syria. I'll talk about how it's being received around the world with President Obama's national security advisor, Susan Rice. What President Trump has done is let out of jail, given a get-out-of-jail-free card to about 10,000 terrorists. We'll also discuss Trump's now infamous phone call with Ukraine and why Rice wasn't satisfied when Obama offered her the UN ambassadorship. Then, David Miliband on the consequences on the ground in Syria. And I'll ask Donald Trump's so-called China whisperer, the billionaire Stephen Schwartzman, when he thinks the trade war between the world's two largest economies will end. Finally, a novel idea to put a divided America back together. Get the two sides talking, really talking. But first, here's my take. I have long opposed the various efforts to impeach Donald Trump. Overturning an election should be a rare event undertaken in only the most extreme circumstances. The process would create deep wounds in an already divided nation. And as a practical matter, since it's highly unlikely that a Republican-controlled Senate would vote by a two-third majority for conviction, the political effect could well be to vindicate Trump and aid his re-election. But the events of the last few weeks have led me to support an impeachment inquiry to direct American foreign policy for personal political gain is the definition of abuse of power. But what has been far more troubling than that phone call to Ukraine is Trump's refusal to cooperate with the impeachment inquiry. Other presidents have contested a specific subpoena or request for documents. Donald Trump is effectively rejecting Congress's ability to hold him accountable. The rule of law has been built over centuries in the Western world, but it remains fragile because it is based on a bluff. The bluff is that at the highest level, everyone will respect the rules, even though it might not be possible always to force compliance. The rule at the heart of the American system is the separation of powers. The founder's greatest fear was that too much power in the hands of government would mean the end of liberty. So they ensured that power was shared and that each branch would act as a check on the other. The crucial feature for James Madison, the chief architect of the Constitution, was giving to those who administer each department or branch the necessary constitutional means and personal motives to resist encroachments of the others. Ambition must be made to counteract ambition, he wrote. But the system only works if all sides respect it. At the end of the day, Congress does not have an army or police force at its disposal, nor does the Supreme Court. 
These institutions rely on the president to accept their authority and enforce their laws and rulings. When the Supreme Court held unanimously that Richard Nixon could not use executive privilege to withhold the Watergate tapes, Nixon immediately agreed to comply, even though he knew it would mean the end of his presidency. All modern U.S. presidents, both Republican and Democratic, have expanded their powers. But Trump is on a different planet. He has refused to comply with wholly constitutional legislative requests for documents, information, and testimony. He has diverted money toward a project clearly not funded by Congress, reportedly promised pardons for officials who might break the law. He's now doubled down on his rejection of congressional oversight over him. Were Trump's positions to prevail, the American president would become an elected dictator. The Democrats, meanwhile, are on firm constitutional grounds, but are being politically unwise. They should ensure that this impeachment inquiry is and looks fair. They should follow the precedents laid down during the last two impeachment investigations. The inquiry should be undertaken as a great act of public education. A democracy can turn into a tyranny not all at once with a bang, but over time. Officials, often elected, often popular, can simply decide to weaken and then dispense with constitutional constraints or legislative checks. Liberty is eroded slowly but steadily. The Weimar Republic was a well-functioning liberal democracy that, within a few short years, using mostly legal processes, became a totalitarian dictatorship. Reflecting on that history, Yale's Timothy Snyder writes, The conclusions for conservatives of today emerge clearly. Do not break the rules that hold a republic together, because one day you will need order. For more, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Last Sunday night, the White House sent shockwaves through the American national security community and through the corridors of power around the world with its announcement about Syria. The U.S. was gone from northern Syria, the statement said, and Turkey was moving in. On Wednesday, Turkey's operation began with airstrikes, artillery fire and troops and death and destruction and condemnation. I want to talk about Syria and Ukraine and much more with my next guest, Susan Rice. Susan was President Obama's ambassador to the U.N. and then his national security advisor. She's the author of a new book, Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For. Pleasure to have you on. It's great to be with you, Fareed. Before we get to Syria and Ukraine, I got to ask you about the moment you write about in your book when President Obama calls you and asks you to be his ambassador to the United Nations, um, a storied position, a cabinet position, and you respond by saying, well, thanks very much, but I was hoping you'd ask me to be national security advisor. I think that the technical term for that is chutzpah. Yes, that's the polite term. <laughs> Why did you do that? And what was his reaction, which you don't recount? Well, actually, his reaction was quite cool. He, he said, uh, you know, I really would consider that down the road. But in the moment, uh, I wanted somebody, because he was dealing with the financial crisis, that it would be perceived as able to step in the job, hit the ground running on day one, and he wanted a general for that. 
And you'll recall he selected General Jim Jones, who's a four-star NATO commander. Um, but he said, look, I really want you to go to the U.N., and I think you'll do a great job, and let's see what happens after that. You know that, that But let that, me explain the it does give you a reputation. Well, you know what, Fareed, I think lots of guys would have done the same. And I say that in the book. And one of the things I admire most about uh, President Obama is that he didn't expect differently from women than men. I think, you know, for me, it took a little guts to say that. It was honestly how I felt. I was perfectly ready to accept that it was his choice to make. But what I say in the book is women have to advocate for themselves. And if they don't, other people won't. And many men, many of my male colleagues uh, have done much more than that, quite honestly. All right. Let me ask you about um, Syria. Uh, another technical term you, you use to describe President Trump's decision um, is batshit crazy. Are we able to say that on CNN? <laughs> Where, I, I is, did not say basic, that on CNN. <laughs> <laughs> this is basic cable. Okay. Um, tell me, um, let me post you essentially President Trump's argument, which, as you know, is not, is not one that others haven't made, which is, look, we shouldn't be in this. This is a complicated civil war. We don't we, we don't really have a good side to, to, to support. In a sense, that was President Obama's decision. Why is Trump not, not, not right to say, let's just get out? Well, you're right, Fareed. It is complicated, but we need to break it down uh, for the American people because this is not a, an involvement that we got into to be on one side of civ serious civil war. President Obama actually made the difficult choice not to involve us in serious civil war, that between Assad and the rebels. What he did decide to do, because our national security interests were directly implicated, was to uh, deploy U.S. personnel, uh, mostly in terms of air power, but some advisors on the ground, to fight ISIS, because ISIS posed a direct threat to the security uh, of our allies in Europe, to the United States itself, and to the region. So this is a counterterrorism fight that we're in. It's not picking sides in a civil war. President Trump... Uh, inherited that operation well underway with ISIS on the ropes. And under President Trump, uh, the fight was continued against ISIS. And largely, they have been contained in the caliphate, such as it was, dismantled. But as we've seen many times in this part of the world, ISIS or al-Qaeda or whatever it is has a, an ability to reconstitute itself. And so our presence in northern Syria, and really talking about just a few hundred U.S. military advisors, trainers, um, was essential to supporting the Kurds, thousands of whom took the fight to ISIS on our behalf with our pledge of support. And what we did in walking away from them was two really bad things. One was to essentially convey the message to them and to any potential ally around the world we're, when we wake up on the wrong side of the bed and decide our relationship is over, we're ending it on the spot and leaving you vulnerable to a brutal assault, which is what Turkey is now engaged in, to slaughter these Kurds. The second reason it's so dangerous is because the fight against ISIS is not entirely won. There are 10,000 or more ISIS prisoners who had been in Kurdish custody who now will be either released or escape because the Kurds have no choice but to defend themselves. So in effect, what President Trump has done is let out of jail, given a get-out-of-jail-free card, to about 10,000 terrorists. And if that doesn't implicate our national security in a very severe way, I don't know what does. Um, let me ask you about process, because as national security advisor, you saw so much of it. 
What's striking about this decision, it, it seems as though President Trump has these emotional reactions which, which he wants to translate into policy, like get, get out of the Middle East. The pe- policy people around him think it's kind of difficult to do, if not unwise, so they slow walk a lot of it. And so it seemed like the Pentagon had been, Trump had after all announced that we were getting out of Syria, you know, months and months ago. They slow walk it and then he, he realizes or has a phone call with the leader, oh my God, we still have troops in Syria. And then explodes. I mean, have you ever seen a process like that? With, with some there is other? no process. I wish I could call this a process. It is the whim of one man. And I don't think it's coincidental that it occurs when we have a brand new national security advisor and an even newer chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who's only been on the job since October 1. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that it happened just after President Trump got off the phone with President Erdogan of Turkey. And I really am very concerned to know what President Trump got out of that deal, because he doesn't give stuff away for free. He thinks he's the best negotiator on the face of the earth. What was in this for him personally, politically or financially, or for the United States? Because Democrats and Republicans who rarely agree on anything these days are in agreement that there's nothing good in this for the United States and our national security. All right. When we come back, we will talk about another phone call, President Trump's infamous phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky and many other issues. And we are back now with Susan Rice, former national security advisor, former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and the author of Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For. Let me ask you about about Ukraine. First, about the, the, the issue that you dealt with when you were national security advisor, when Joe Biden was sent to Ukraine. Um, as you know, the argument that Donald Trump makes and now repeatedly makes over and over again is uh, Biden went there, asked them to fire a special prosecutor who was investigating corruption in Ukraine, including uh, a company that Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, was on the board of. Um, and that in that sense, he was advancing his personal interests using U.S. foreign policy. What do you say? It's very simple, but since Donald Trump has done such a good job of trying to confuse people, let me break it down. In the first instance, Joe Biden was acting on behalf of the U.S. government. At President Obama's direction, he was implementing what was bipartisan U.S. policy at the time, supported by Republicans and Democrats in Congress, our Western allies, the International Monetary Fund, which was to try to persuade uh, President Poroshenko to get rid of this very corrupt prosecutor who was in charge of prosecuting corruption. We did that because the United States and the international community was providing billions of dollars in assistance to the newly elected uh, government of Ukraine, and we wanted to see that money spent responsibly. That was the basis of Vice President Biden's actions. By the way, it had nothing to do with his son, Hunter. His son, Hunter's, the company that Hunter served with, was not in in that moment under investigation by this prosecutor. So this has been one of those very uh, elaborate efforts by Donald Trump to distract and, and deflect and to tar an opponent based on lies. Should uh, Vice President Biden have revealed to you or to somebody it else? It was in the public domain at the time. That, hunt, that his It was in was... the public domain. There's no secret here. And by the way, just to be clear what the difference is between what Vice President Biden did 
on behalf of U.S. policy and what President Trump did on behalf of his own political benefit. Trump asked, first of all, Trump extorted the newly elected president of Ukraine using almost $400 million in taxpayer military assistance to Ukraine when Ukraine is occupied by a hostile Russia and there's still a hot war going on. He said, we're going to keep that aid back. I'm not going to give you a White House meeting unless you give me dirt, which doesn't exist, on his political opponent. I'm sure there was a quid pro quo. Read the transcript. Read the transcript. It's there in black and white. That's how I'm sure. Uh, And the fact that the the president put it out and thinks there's nothing wrong with it that is perfect shows you that he really doesn't have a sense of the difference between right and wrong. But leaving that aside for a second, President Trump extorts a partner who's under duress for his personal political benefit, not on behalf of the U.S. government, not on behalf of our policy. What's striking to me as a former national security advisor about that transcript is there's not one sentence in there that advances U.S. policy or U.S. interests. Not one. It's all about him. And the other part of the difference is that then the Trump White House tried to hide that transcript and bury it. Let me ask you about foreign policy in general. Do you feel as though I mean, I watched the Syria business, and the president makes an announcement one day, then he, then he realizes that maybe he's been too soft on the Turks, and he says, I'm going to totally obliterate Turkey's economy, which I can do, you know, uh, in, my, uh, in my great wisdom. Um, then he, <laughs> well, then great, he realizes... Well, was per- great and unmatched wisdom. Unmatched wisdom, like right. Um, then he gets, feels like maybe he's been too hard on the Turks and invites Erdogan for a White House meeting, all this in 72 hours. And then he says that he told the Turks not to cross into Syria. I mean, it's... Which they then do. Um, Which, of course, he knew they were going to do. So this is all in 72 hours. Head spinning. What do you think the world takes from it? The world takes from this, Fareed, that we have no idea what we're doing and that the national security decision-making process has completely broken down. I mean, as I discuss in my book, which is, you know, as much a personal story as it is about my time... Uh, in the Clinton and Obama administrations, whether you worked for President Reagan, Bush one, Bush two, Clinton, Obama, there was a national security decision making process that we all tried to adhere to, where tough issues were worked from the bottom up with facts, with analysis, with intelligence, with policy options that were debated and, you know, and assessed on their merits recommendations made from deputies to principals, from principals to the president of the United States, all in a thoughtful and accountable way. And then when the president makes a decision, there's a plan for how it's communicated. It's not tweeted out at some odd hour with exclamation points. There's a really thoughtful communication strategy that involves consulting with our allies, that involves you know, ensuring that Congress is briefed. All of that has broken down. And I think it's really important for the American people to understand that this is not normal. It's dysfunctional. It's dangerous. And we can't allow it to become the norm. So, you know, I'm perfectly prepared to submit, and I am honest about this in in my book, you know, we didn't get everything right. And where we did get it right, I try to, you know, be frank about it. And we get it wrong, I be frank about it. Same with all of our predecessor administrations. The process when adhered to doesn't necessarily yield perfect answers, but it yields thoughtful consideration. And that's all lost now. 
and we have got to get it back. Susan Rice, pleasure to have you on. Good to be with you. Next on GPS, the on-the-ground consequences of President Trump's Syria decision. I will talk to David Miliband, the head of the International Rescue Committee, one of the few aid organizations with people actually on the ground. What has been the effect of Trump's decision on the ground in Syria? Well, David Miliband runs the International Rescue Committee, one of the few aid organizations that remains on the front lines in Syria. In Miliband's former life, he was a British politician and the Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom. Welcome. Thanks. What is happening as you see this Turkish advance? What are you, what are you hearing? We know from our own staff on the ground, these are local Syrians who are working for us on health and other projects, that tens of thousands of people are fleeing, bombing and fighting. Uh, these are people in the five million uh, person Kurdish zone. They're of all ethnicities, but in the vast preponderance, they're Kurds, and they are fleeing from the Turkish invasion. It's as simple as that. And obviously, there's great concern about the future of the humanitarian situation in that zone, uh, and more widely, if the fighting spreads. Now, the other thing that's happening is that the Turks are trying to use this space that they're conquering to resettle a whole bunch of Syrian refugees. Um, but that it's, it itself is fraught with, uh, with complications. Explain why. Yeah, Turkey's done an extraordinary job over the last uh, seven or eight years. 3.7 million Syrians have fled to Turkey. They're in the main Sunni Arabs. They're from west of the Euphrates River. So not Kurds. Not Kurds. And what is significant about what President Erdogan has said very openly at the United Nations is he wants to take the Sunni Arabs that are in Turkey and plant them into the Kurdish area of Syria. Now, that obviously raises immediate issues about local tension, as well as the fighting between the uh, Kurds and the Turks. And this would be a deportation, effectively, against the will of the people, against uh, UN and other regulations. And what's extraordinary to me is that this is such a, this had been such an example of the, uh, the limited but effective use of American power. A few hundred American troops seem to have been able to maintain the peace. Well, that is a great point, because, of course, we at the International Rescue Committee can see the situation in the Kurdish area, where there were a few hundred American troops, where we were delivering our services. We helped about half a million people with health care last year. And we can see the contrast between the situation in the northeast of Syria and in the northwest. In the northwest, it's a total war zone. You've got three and a half million people there. One million of them have fled into that area from other parts of Syria. You have Russian bombing. You have Syrian government pushing in, and you have bombing of civilian centres, bombing of hospitals, over 500 hospitals bombed since May. And so you've got this very clear contrast between an area where the ring was being held by American troops and an area where it's the Wild West. What is the larger point about American foreign policy here from your point of view? It's summed up in a simple word, vacuum. There is no American diplomatic presence of a significant kind in trying to bring the Syrian conflict to an end and establish some kind of stability. It's a genuine crisis of diplomacy because America is in retreat. Britain has been castrated by the Brexit process. There is no British uh, foreign uh, policy. And so the field has been left for Russia, for Iran, for Turkey to work through the so-called Astana process that has replaced the UN as the central body organizing a peacemaking settlement in Syria. Wow. David Miliband, pleasure to have you on. Thanks very much indeed.
Next on GPS, America is a nation divided, divided on impeachment, divided on the future of the country, divided between the two sides of the aisle. Well, I will bring you a solution for bridging that divide when we come back. Now for our What in the World segment. Everyone agrees that Americans are more polarized today than at any time in recent history. But there is a group of experts who are trying to do something about it. Last month, an experiment called America in One Room was led by James Fishkin, the head of Stanford's Center for Deliberative Democracy, and Larry Diamond of the Hoover Institution. In a suburb in Dallas, they assembled 523 registered voters from all across America and of all political persuasions. We have to protect our borders. There they spent a long weekend talking about immigration, foreign policy, health care, the economy, and the environment. Perhaps shocking, the two sides weren't at each other's throats all weekend long. Instead, participants poured over briefing booklets and consulted experts. They broke into small discussion groups and poured out their feelings. Separating families, how could we continue to do that? Before the sessions and after, they were polled. And the results were astonishing. Support for immigrant work visas soared. Opposition to refugees entering the U.S. plummeted. On the economy, Democrats moved from the left to the center. People actually listened and changed their minds. It's all part of a model Fishkin developed called deliberative polling. Perhaps the most fascinating were the responses on foreign policy among Republicans. Their support for rejoining the Trans-Pacific Partnership rose almost 40 percentage points at the end of the four days. Support for the Iran nuclear deal among Republicans rose by more than 20 percentage points. How can we explain such a massive shift? Remember that a polarized electorate serves politicians who want to win elections. They have an incentive to rile up the base. But polarization doesn't serve most citizens. And when you bring those citizens together, they're actually not so divided. Just ask Fishkin. He says he conducted 109 deliberative polls in 28 countries. They almost always result in that conclusion. Take Bulgaria. As the New York Times reported, in 2007, 255 people met for two days to discuss the plight of the Roma, one of Europe's largest minority groups that has long struggled to integrate. Support for desegregating Roma schools went from 42% before the discussion to 66% after. Support for housing segregation fell from 43% to 21%. In Northern Ireland earlier that same year, Protestants and Catholics mixed for a day of deliberation over school policy. After, the proportion of Protestants who thought Catholics were open-minded and trustworthy rose significantly and vice versa. What all of this makes clear is that no conflict or policy puzzle is intractable if you engage citizens. And that concept can be extended beyond polling. Look at Ireland. As Foreign Policy notes, many think that the historic referendum that legalized abortion last year would not have been possible had the government not convened an assembly of 99 citizens to debate the matter two years earlier. The assembly ended up recommending unrestricted access to abortion. Former British Prime Minister Gordon Brown has proposed citizens' assemblies to fix the dilemma that is Brexit. Environmental groups think that they could help solve policy gridlock over the climate crisis. If such assemblies are really empowered, they might prove what Fishkin's polling suggests. Anything is possible when people start engaging with each other and with their government.
Next on GPS, President Trump's so-called China whisperer, the billionaire businessman Stephen Schwartzman. He's close to leadership in Washington and Beijing, so what is his take on whether this trade war will end? Back in a moment. A new round of U.S.-China trade talks this week actually made some progress. But we've come to a deal on intellectual property, financial services, a tremendous deal for the farmers. Multi-billionaire businessman and philanthropist Stephen Schwartzman has a unique perspective on those proceedings and indeed on all U.S.-China relations. He is the co-founder, chair and CEO of Blackstone, a top financial firm. And Schwartzman stands astride the Pacific with a foot and lots of capital in each nation. He's been called Donald Trump's China whisperer because he's a friend and big booster of President Trump and also very close to China's leadership. Schwartzman's new book is What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. Steve Schwartzman, pleasure to have you on. It's great to be here. So why has it been difficult to get a deal? You, I think it's been reported you're one of the people President Trump has used as an intermediary. Well, the reason it's hard to get a deal is one side of it uh, has been growing faster than any country in world history uh, over the last 40 years. And their desire to change uh, isn't overwhelming. Um, and, but, but they're smart and they know that change is important. So the question is, how much change, how fast? And that's just the debate. The idea of just staying the way we are isn't, isn't the case. But you think that the Chinese want a deal? I, I think the Chinese um, are, are not um, enjoying the way this is evolving because it's hurting their economy. It's, I believe, hurting the U.S. economy. It'll end up hurting the emerging markets who sell to China. Uh, and it'll end up hurting Europe. Uh, And so this is a lose, lose, lose for everyone. And it's just a question of when people come to the table and um, say, okay, what do we really have to do? It was pretty close in May, and the Chinese uh, decided to pull back for reasons that that were were not fully uh, explainable uh, at the time. It was pretty shocking for the U.S. people who were working uh, on it. And I, I think they have their own complex internal situation uh, in uh, China. Uh, however, uh, just decoupling uh, or delinking as the two biggest economies in the world, and we're a lot of the world economy. It it's could be as low as 35% of the world economy with the U.S. and China. Some calculations would take it close to 40. So when the parents... Uh, are fighting, the, the, the children uh, get very upset. Uh, and, and so I don't think uh, the delinking strategy is stable for the world. And, do, you think, and, do you think President Trump agrees with you? You, you should ask him, uh, not, not me. So let me ask you, um, one of the things in your book you talk about how it's very good to worry, to be, to be concerned about any ominous signs. Um, you have a unique vantage point. Do you think we are at the beginning of a recession? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, the, the reason for that is about 72% of the U.S. economy is consumer-based. And, and the consumer is doing extremely well. 
And, and part of what's happening as we increase the minimum wage uh, in a full uh, sort of a, a working economy is that minimum wage is, is higher as it's going up and other labor costs because of scarcity are going up. And, and so, so that's about 4% growth in wages with an economy that's growing at two uh, and inflation that is... Um, you know, somewhere, I guess, around one and a half. So, so for the first time in a very, very long time, the consumer is out-earning the growth of the economy. So does that mean raising the minimum wage was a good idea? I, I always thought it was a good idea because, you know, we, we, we have an issue where we don't have a, enough people in the country uh, who are earning enough money and they're hurting. So, so you have to have, you know, them have what, what I call uh, income sufficiency. Um, and, and one of the ways of, of having that transfer is to have people working uh, as opposed to just a transfer payment uh, and to have those people working make a lot more money. Uh, and, and that's a good thing for the, for the country. So a lot of people look at business and say, look, everyone's trying to be successful. Um, some people manage to be successful. They, they get lucky and then they think that their worldview is, is the, the, the blessed one. What do you think? How much of what, I mean, you have achieved phenomenal success in business. How much of that success was luck? Well, I, I think luck always plays some part. It depends when you're born. Uh, depends where you went to school. Um, it, it depends on what's happening in the world when you enter the workforce. Uh, is, is it going up? Is it, you know, sort of um, in an unhappy period or is it just stable and uninteresting? Uh, and, and, you know, I was fortunate uh, to be year number two of the baby boom after World War II. So there weren't a lot of people ahead of you, which made it easier. Uh, and my generation uh, basically changed almost every institution it went through because it was the equivalent of the pig and the python. We were so big that, the, the, that every institution, educationally, um, uh, consumer-wise, was impacted and changed by my institution. It made it easier to, to be, in effect, a senior member by birth uh, of, of that uh, cohort. Steve Schwartzman, pleasure to have you on, sir. My pleasure to be here. To hear more from Steve Schwartzman on his new book, What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence, go to cnn.com slash Fareed, and we will be back. As the debate continues over who is welcome in America, just under 2 million residents of another country have had their legal status thrown into question after being excluded from an official citizen registry. It brings me to my question. Where was this citizen registry published? India, Poland, South Africa, or Israel? Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. My book of the week is Age of Ambitions by Evan Osnos. At a time when everyone is talking about China, it is worth remembering that beyond Beijing, the nation is a vast country full of complexity and contradictions. Evan Osnos portrays this vividly in his last book. The answer to my GPS challenge this week is A, India. Earlier this summer, the northeastern state of Assam 
published an updated National Registry of Citizens, which may leave some 1.9 million people stateless. The list excluded anyone who could not present sufficient documentation proving they or their families had arrived in Assam prior to the Bangladesh Liberation War of 1971, not coincidentally when huge numbers of mostly Muslim ethnic Bengalis fled genocidal violence from Bangladesh into India. Tensions have been stewing ever since. Reuters and local media report that Assam's government is planning to build detention camps with capacities in the thousands. It is not clear what will become of those excluded from the list. Officials say no one will be sent to the detention centers during the legal process. The BBC reports that the head of India's ruling Hindu Nationalist Party promised to repeat the registry process in the neighboring state of West Bengal. And Reuters reports he has called such undocumented people infiltrators and termites who must be thrown into the Bay of Bengal. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.